Hello, this is Ricky Jones. Welcome to From Sunday to Monday, our podcast where we answer questions from the sermon the day before and just kind of chat and give you a chance to hopefully get some very applicable, concrete applications of God's Word to your life. So Jonathan's back from his ski trip. How was, uh, yes, how was the vacation? It was great. Seven guys from the church. We left four pregnant wives, three non-pregnant wives at home and but made it back, no injuries, all limbs currently attached. Well, I think I think it's better to take uh, to leave pregnant wives than it is to leave wives with newborn children. But they better be making it up on Valentine's Day. That's yes. all I got to say on that. I think they will be. Speaking of that, if you have not registered for our uh, marriage conference, you you should. It's coming up February nineteenth, Double Tree downtown. You can get to that from our website. All right, Jonathan, I preached on homosexuality yesterday, so I know we have a ton of questions. A lot of questions. Apparently, uh, this issue strikes the chord. What a shock. What a shock. shock. All right, let's jump in. Okay, first question. At what point is marriage out of the question for those who struggle with same-sex attraction? You know, it's an interesting question. I don't think there's a definite answer, a specific answer. You can say, you know, marriage is out of the question for you or not out of the question for you. I think... Man, there's a lot to say about that. I've had at least four friends who uh, declared themselves to be gay and were married at one time or another. One is currently married and doing well, and his wife understands his struggles, and they ha- I think they have a great marriage. They're expecting their first child soon. Uh, three others uh, ended in divorce. But really, the thing that caused the divorce was a... Uh, the deception they did not go into their marriage having told their wives about their struggles and so the wives you know for, for years uh, just had to deal with this terrible shame of of believing that the reason why their marriage was not intimate was not sexually active was their fault it was just awful even with that i know at least one of the, the ladies would have gladly stayed married to her husband uh, because they were had such a good friendship he just did not want to stay married to her. I, I think, honestly, uh, this is the way I think about it. I'm, I'm counseling right now two gay men. Both of them would be wonderful husbands. I think if they came into the relationship, the uh, being honest, told the ladies that they were interested in, that I'm not sure sex is ever going to be part of our life, but we could have a great friendship and a great relationship. I think I think a lot of women, I think, honestly, I think women would be lining up to, to marry them. They're the great guys. So I would encourage uh, people to be open to it, but uh, I, I just can't step into another person's skin and give an answer to that specifically, I guess. What would you say? Yeah, it sounds, I don't know how to put it, it sounds a little new agey to say that, but I've been told by men with same-sex attraction that sexuality is, is not sort of either one, you're one camp or the other but it's more of a spectrum. And mm-hmm. I think that can change mm-hmm. over time, given different factors. And so I think, I, I agree with you. I think marriage is never out of the question. And, you know, we both know, know men who are married to women, still struggle with attraction to other men, but mm-hmm. have sex with the, their wives and, and yeah. seem to be pretty happy. Yeah. And, and I just think there's something about the complementary nature of a man and a woman that goes far beyond just sex. And I, I think it, it can be very valuable. I want to encourage people to consider it. On At the same time, I think it's important for us as Christians not to hold up the idolatry that people have of marriage. 
Uh, marriage is not the end-all, be-all. The Apostle Paul said being single is a good thing, and some of the greatest contributions uh, to, to the church over history have been made by single men and women. It, it, yeah, everybody's just got to follow their calling, but I would encourage people to be open to, to whatever the Lord's calling them to do. Good. Next question. You speak of believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, but what about folks who aren't believers and don't consider it a struggle or an issue? How can we best love, support, and minister to them? Well, uh, the same way you would love, support, and minister to anybody who's not a believer. You know, you, you be a good neighbor to them, you love them, you serve them, uh, and, when it, and when you can, you share your testimony with them of how you know, here's here's the Lord. He told me everything I've ever done, and uh, that's from John chapter four. This is where I found grace. If they're looking, if they're not looking, then you'd be friends with them. You know, it's not my job to convince people who are not interested in the gospel. It's not my job to convince them of anything, politics, sexuality, whatever. Um, someone comes to me with a question, then I'll help them answer it. But one of the rules I learned very very early in the ministry is you don't you don't try to answer questions people aren't asking. That you can all you can do is all you can do. So I, I guess I feel like this is a trick question. I don't know what they're asking. So yeah. I'd just be friends with people and love them. Yeah, I think in the current church climate and political climate, Christians sometimes feel like they have to always be standing up for what they believe. Yeah, and that really does hinder that neighbor love that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear what I hear all the time is people saying. Well, I just don't want them to think I approve of them. And I'm like, why? What? <laughs> right. Why not? I mean, who cares? Do you go around, you know, if someone spends too much money on their car, do you do you go and say, hey, by the way, I think greed is bad? I mean, <laughs> what other sins are you not, are you wanting to make sure people know you don't approve of? I, I don't know. It just seems, I get it, I guess. There's a fear of, you know, kind of a cultural fear. We're, we're losing our grip on culture. I just, I don't buy into that too much. Okay, next question. What has the church done that is good and bad regarding its reaction to same-sex marriage, and how should we as Christians react? Okay, that's good. Same-sex marriage. Well, the easy it's easy to talk about what we've done this bad. Uh, speaking of the church, kind of the American church, I think there's two equal and opposite mistakes that are being made. On one hand is the mistake of, of people who are overreacting and really kind of singling out this one sin and really ostracizing people, form, uh, forcing homosexuals to feel like, or to continue to feel unwelcomed and unloved and like they're, they're committing the unpardonable sin. And we, we have to get away from that. We have to stop that, the culture war nonsense. We're not fighting. You know, gay, gay men are not our enemies. Gay, uh, gay women, lesbians are not our uh, enemies. Um, Evil, sin, Satan are our enemies. We want to fight for people. We want to love people, show them grace. And so just engaging in the, the warfare is, is not helping at all. It's awful. On the other hand, um, you know, churches are, are caving in and saying, well, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, maybe gay marriage is okay. A good friend of mine, one of my former mentors, has done that. His church has started embracing uh, gay married couples. And, and that makes me really sad. And my understanding is the Old Testament describes a false prophet as somebody who says, uh, calls evil good and good evil. And the Bible says celibacy is good and homosexuality and homosexual sex is evil. And we, have to, we just have to stand by that. Those are the two equal and opposite mistakes. 
I think what's going good, though, is that we are hopefully, Jonathan, hopefully, entering a day where people can honestly walk into their community group, walk into the church and say, I'm a Christian. Same-sex attraction is something that I struggle with. And people will say, man, we are glad to have you. We will walk alongside you. And we are not going to ostracize you for that. You know, if your family freaks out when they hear that and kicks you out, then you have a family with us. I hope we're getting more and more gracious and, and, and more open and letting people talk about it. So how would you answer that? I think you did a great job answering it. Well, and uh, one of our listeners sent a follow-up question, which is, campaigning against legal gay marriage is often taken as hatred. Doesn't mm-hmm. this damage our witness? What do you think about that? Yeah, I just think, this is the thing. This is what I think. You don't know what I think? You obviously asked. Facebook, Twitter, social media in general has really taken people to this point of feeling like they have to offer their opinion on everything. And you don't. You just don't. I, I, I don't campaign against legal gay marriage. I don't campaign for it. I don't have a strong opinion about it. I think it's a very, very small minority of people who want it, who would use it. And uh, there, you know, I'm not crazy about it. I would never encourage someone to pursue a gay marriage. But I don't think it's the biggest injustice going on in government today. And so I, I think it's okay. I would encourage people just to say, you know, just to be quiet on that issue. I don't think it's, it's worthy of all the uproar. Yeah. Well, here's a... You're more politically involved than I am, so maybe... I don't uh, know. I am not. <laughs> I am not. Here's a more uh, personal question that someone sent in. How would you counsel someone who's been invited to the wedding of a gay couple who both profess to trust Christ as their Savior? Man, I knew the questions are going to be hard today. Uh, you know, A, I want to acknowledge that that's difficult. And whenever you're going on a difficult issue, what you want to do, whenever you're trying to decide what to do about a difficult issue, what you want to do is inform your conscience as well as you can. And then I just want you to know it's never safe to go against your conscience. I don't think there is a right or wrong thing to do in this case. And absolutely, I do not have a word from the Lord on whether you can do this or not. Now, what I do think is we need to get away from the idea of kind of an informal, personal church discipline. This idea that, you know, we have to shun people who are doing things that uh, we don't find biblical. I don't think that's in the Bible. My understanding, I understand where people get that. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If, some, if a person claims to be a believer and is sexually immoral, such a person do not even eat. I think he's talking about the church in that situation. I agree. I, th- I think he's talking about uh, the, the feast and spe- specifically communion in that situation. And I think church discipline is for the church. Recently, we had a couple come and visit the church, and they were uh, it was a lesbian couple. They're wonderful. I thought they were very cool, very smart. I really wanted them to be involved in our church, but I told them they couldn't join. They could not, or they could join, but we would immediately separate them from the Lord's Supper because they're they are doing what the Lord forbids. That's church discipline. That's a loving thing to do to tell somebody. You're doing something that the Bible says is destructive and you have to stop. But 
that's the church's job. It's not an individual's job. It's not my job to go around and stamp marks of disapproval on people. So um, I, I, I still know. It's tough. I think I would go to a gay wedding now, but that's tough. That's a new position for my of mine, yeah. and I've never been asked. I would not perform one. I know that for sure. Yeah, yeah we aren't even allowed to. Right. And I have a, I have not encountered this situation yet, but a similar situation, I think, at a former church. I had a divorced woman who was a member of my church. She began dating a man that she knew was not a Christian, but they got engaged and they asked me to do their wedding. And I said, I, I can't do right. the wedding, even if I wanted to. My denomination doesn't allow me to do that, whatnot, but... They invited me to the wedding, and I went, and I honestly thought that she would stop coming to church. Um, she kept coming, and he started coming with her and made a profession of faith. I don't know that the ends justify the means, but I think there was a distinction that I wasn't saying this is okay, but I love you. Right. That's so that important. It's so hard to do that sometimes. Uh, you know, and I think... I think it's okay to be as explicit as you can to say, I love you, and I think what you're doing is destructive for you. And so the problem is a lot of times we try to find passive ways to say that without just saying it. And maybe the best thing to do is just to say it. Okay, we, we keep getting questions that I think follow naturally follow up with what we're talking about. The next question is, can you elaborate on let the church be church and you be you? And then they qualify. Not trying to play gotcha, but now confused. Well, like I said, the church's job is the apostle uh, Jesus. Jesus told the church, you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we have historically interpreted that. And by historic, I don't mean the 10 years of River Oaks. I mean the 2,000 years of church history. We have historically interpreted that to mean when we offer someone baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are we are opening the doors to the kingdom of heaven to them. And when we censure someone, when we excommunicate somebody, when we take the Lord's Supper away from them, that is shutting the doors to the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus says, whatever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. Whatever you hold on earth will be uh, held in heaven. And so it's the church's job to do that. And I even think the word excommunication is confusing because people hear it and they think, oh, I'm not supposed to communicate with that person. I'm not supposed to talk to them. That's not what it means. Excommunication means we have taken you away from communion, from the Lord's Supper, from communing with God. So just a little side note. So, for instance, you know, we've had couples in our church that have committed adultery. We've censured them from the Lord's table. Uh, We did that with, uh, which means we withheld them, told them you cannot take communion. The Lord brought repentance out of that. You know, it was a real blessing. And, it, you know, everybody in the church, all the individuals in the church didn't say, oh, you've been excommunicated. I can't talk to you. Actually, they went to these people and really, you know, the uh, wife asked the husband to leave the house. And so another couple in the church said, you know, here we have an extra bedroom for you to stay in. We loved on them and the Lord redeemed their marriage. That's the church being the church. It's not your job to go around deciding Oh, this person is a sinner. I can't talk to them. Uh, this person is not a sinner. I can't talk to them. You know, that's that's kind of an individualistic shunning that I, I think is harmful. Good. Is that more confusing? Is that helpful or unhelpful? Is that I sometimes think, I get answering questions and I think I muddy the waters. No, I think I think it's helpful because there is a distinction. 
Well, here's a question which is similar. I'm sorry. Let me jump in on that one more thing. A great example of that is a book called Comeback Barbara. It was written by a pastor named Jack Miller and his daughter, Barbara Miller Giuliani. And it's about how she rebelled from the faith. Uh, She told them, he told her, she told him she didn't want anything else to do with Christianity and ended up, you know, living with a guy, just being extremely immoral. And it's all about how he struggled with that, but continued to love her despite her being out of communion with the church. And so I really, I really love that book. I think it's a good example of how to love somebody um, while they are doing something you believe is self-destructive. Good. Let's take this time maybe to take the time out from questions and just talk about a couple of books yeah. that you might recommend for this issue of homosexuality. Well, you're the reader. You're the reader around this table. What do you, what have you read that's helpful? Well, my go-to book is one you mentioned in worship yesterday is uh, Wesley Hill's book, Washed and Waiting. I think it's just such a great picture of a man who, to really that he knows, has never been attracted to women, has always mm-hmm. been uh, attracted to other men, but is a, is a believer and is a theologian mm-hmm. who has searched the scriptures, read all the arguments, and truly believes that a traditional marriage is God's will for us. And so he is committed to a life of celibacy, but he also knows and has lived a very hard life at times and is just very honest about that struggle. But it's, a, it's just a great book. Yeah. Uh, one I would recommend, I love that book too. Another book I would recommend is Jesus Outside the Lines by Scott Sauls. It's not just about homosexuality. It's really him dealing with all kinds of, of difficult issues for Christians and talking about kind of answering questions outside the, the well-drawn lines of politics and a conservative liberal, but really just dealing with the gospel. Uh, I think, uh, I think his, his work is excellent. So love that book. Love, love Scott Sauls and all of that book. Yeah. And I have to admit, I've had so many people tell me about Rosario Butterfield's book. Mm-hmm. I think it's unlikely thoughts. Confessions of an unlikely convert or something like that. I'll look it up yeah. while you talk about it. Um, I need to read it. I just haven't. I've heard it's really good. Another one, and just in the general area of sexuality and the gospel, that I think is a terrific book, is a book called Surfing for God. I think the author's name is Cusick, John Ian <laughs> Cusick. Uh, we should probably look that up as well. Yeah, Jonathan, you're really not supposed to recommend books. You can't remember the uh, name of here. <laughs> Surfing yeah. for God is the title. I do know that. And now we're both pulling All right, there. so let's move on. We're going to go back to the questions, and I'm going to look this book up, the Rosaria Butterfield book, Okay. because I promised that I would. Michael John Cusick is All the right. author of Surfing for God. All right, what's the next question? The next question. What are some ways we can make confessions safer in our relationships so that it becomes a gift of healing? The secret thoughts of an unlikely convert, Rosario Butterfield. Secret thoughts. Okay, go ahead. What are some ways we can make confessions safer in our relationships so that it becomes a gift of healing? Mm, What a great question. Uh, You know, my prayer for the church has always been, that we would be a place where people could be honest about their sins and receive a deep drink of the gospel. Uh, my good friend, Jean LaRue, planted a church in a very Catholic area near uh, near the Gulf Coast, and 
he used to say the difference between my church and a Catholic church is in a Catholic church, uh, people the people go to the church to confess their sins to the priest, and in my church, the pastor comes to the church to confess his sins to the people. And uh, I lo- always loved that. I'm a strong believer that the pastor should be the chief repenter. And I think really the way you you foster that is just by going first. And it's always scary. It's always scary. You know, last week on January 24th, I started this sermon out really confessing a lot of my sins in the area of sexual immorality. That wasn't fun. Uh, it's always embarrassing. It's embarrassing for my wife and children. You know, just go, oh, great, here comes Dad again. <laughs> but it really does establish that, okay, this is a place where we're just going to be honest. We're not going to wear masks. I think, you know, we can't always do that in a community group. You kind of have to have a an emotional intelligence that, that reads the room and, and tries to determine, you know, is this a night when we're going to shoot pool or is this a night when we're going to really talk about our lives? And you have to you have to create spaces for both, you know. I'm not a good community group leader. <laughs> That's why I'm not leading one right now. So, um. And I think not just pastors. I think all the main leaders of the church, I think one of the main marks of maturity for a Christian is the ability to be the, the chief repenter mm. and to be yeah. aware of your own sin, as Jesus says, not to be always looking for the speck in other people's eyes, but to be able to remove the log in your own eye. And that's what I look for in leaders yeah. is, d- does he repent as much as he confronts? Yeah, or 10 times more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 10 times more. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, the, the two most helpful sentences in, in pastoring are, um, you know, can you help me with this? When, when someone just confesses their weakness and brings you in, and then me too. <laughs> Uh, when when someone shares their weakness and they say me too, you hear that that hey I, I get it I'm with you, and so we have to foster a community where we're saying those things. Well, I hope we're getting close to the end. I'm getting tired. I'm I'm out of coffee. Uh, you want to you want to shut it down for a, a few days? What do you think? You got yeah. one more you want me to hit or? How about one more? All right, one more. And this is gonna be it. How does repentance play into receiving God's oh. grace and forgiveness for this and all sin? Jonathan, you stink. Um. Save the hard one for Yeah, well, it's hard because I feel, I don't know, you never want to assign motives in a question. But let me just start here. Nobody, absolutely no human being has ever earned God's grace by repentance. The Apostle Paul is abundantly clear in that. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Forgiveness, grace, regeneration, being born again, whatever you want to call it, that always comes first. It always comes first. And I think some, a lot of Christians are so afraid, they're just so afraid that we're going to be too forgiving, we're going to be too gracious, and that grace is going to allow people to just do whatever they want to, that they want to... They want to, you know, stick repentance on there and say, "Well, you can only, you can only be forgiven if you repent." And I, and I just praise the Lord that that's not true. We're forgiven first, and we're seen, we're loved first. Jesus uh, loved us. First John says we love because He loved us first, and His love for us pulls out our repentance and, and makes us want to follow after Him. So yes, repentance is a sign that someone is uh, truly a believer. Repentance is a sign that someone is truly 
following after Christ, repentance is a sign that uh, that you're, you've been saved. And, and ultimately, if someone is not showing any repentance, we have to go to them and say, uh, we as a church have to go to them and say, you're not living like a believer, and we're going to have to, and, and therefore you're in danger. And we, because we love you, we're going to take the Lord's Supper away from you until you start acting like a believer. But it, repentance never earns forgiveness, and I just I can't, I just cannot emphasize that enough. It's true. It, it does not repentance does not merit God's forgiveness, and yet I think one of the beautiful things it does is it allows us to come out of the darkness mm-hmm. to be known and to mm-hmm. really as a way of unburdening ourselves. Yeah, so that absolutely. we. What we do when we repent is we experience God's grace and forgiveness mm. better for ourselves. It's not that we attain any greater measure of God's grace and forgiveness. We already have it because of what Jesus has done for it. But when we repent and when we repent regularly, we we get more joy. Yeah. We get a bigger drink of Jesus, as you like to say, Ricky. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's very true. I think one of the real marks of a true believer is they feel the closest to Jesus when they're confessing their sins and they're repenting. And someone who uh, is a legalist or a Pharisee or is trusting their works, they feel ashamed and far away from Jesus when they're confessing their sin and repenting. And encourage, I want to encourage you to repent regularly, daily, just because there is so much more Jesus for you to have. So that's a great, that's a great way to end. Thank you for bringing that up, Jonathan. We didn't get to every question today, but we got to a ton of them and uh, we will I, Jonathan's going to go on a mission trip to Cuba next week, so I'll probably be talking with someone else, and we'll answer the rest of these and more tomorrow, more next week, sorry. Uh, if you have questions, please please email them to admin at riveroakstulsa.com. Have a great week. Thank you. Thanks.